0: hoping that's not how church goes down this morning, yeah? Uh, this is quite an incident in Acts 5. Did you get the bare bones of the story there? A man and his wife turn up to church. They, they bring a generous donation with them, but they lie about how much it is. They pretend that they're more generous than they actually are, and so instantly they drop dead. It's not a laughing matter. Young men come in, they pick up the bodies, they carry them out, they bury them. I've had some memorable Sundays at church before, but I've never seen anything like this. What do we do with it? I've had people say to me when I invite them along to church, a couple of people in this past year have said, oh, Lachlan, I couldn't come to church. I'm so sinful. If I walked into church, God would strike me dead instantly. Now, they're always joking as they say that, but Acts 5 is no joke. Ananias and Sapphira, sin, God strikes them dead. How do we respond to that how does this shape our attitude when we gather like this as a church should we be afraid as we sit here this morning we're going to press into the story and find out but let me pray first that god would help us with this father your word is good and true and life giving it's the double-edged sword that cuts us to the core it shows us our hearts and so lord we pray this morning that you would show us ourselves I can say what's in this passage, but only you can take that word and convict us. You can help us to identify any hypocrisy in our fellowship as a church. Please do that this morning, that we might live as a community that honours and pleases you. Amen. My name's Lachlan, and I'll be leading us through this passage this morning. Keep your Bible open there to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing on in this book of Acts, which is really a book of history about the early church. Uh, If you've been with us so far, you'll remember that Luke has written this book, Luke has compiled this history, so that we might have certainty about the things that God has fulfilled in Jesus. Remember back in Luke chapter 1, that was the purpose of writing Luke and Acts together, that we would have certainty of the things God has fulfilled among us, and so that we would be bold in our proclamation of Jesus, that we'd be bold believers in the risen and ascended Jesus that we'd boldly cling to Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God in heaven right now, ruling over this world, continuing to work on the earth by His Spirit through His church. That's why Luke has written this book of Acts. Back in chapter 1, we watched as the risen Jesus commissioned His apostles, sent them out to be His witnesses, witnesses to His resurrection, to preach His name throughout the world. In chapter 2, they were waiting and then they received the promised Holy Spirit, It was a new age that started as the Spirit had come, and now the apostles, emboldened by the Spirit, could preach of Jesus. They went out and, speaking all the different languages of the region, proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. 3,000 people converted in one day, baptized. It's an amazing time. Last week in chapter 3 and 4, we saw that persecution started. Remember Peter and John there preaching in the temple? They'd healed a lame beggar, and they get pulled aside and arrested by the Jewish leaders. But was that going to stop them? Were they going to stop preaching about Jesus just because they were getting arrested for us? No, they were going to obey God rather than people. And so this story, as it unfolds, we're seeing who Jesus is. We're being reminded that He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. We're seeing the boldness of the apostles and it's encouraging us, inspiring us to follow in their footsteps. So by this stage, as we hit chapter 4, verse 32, there are about 5,000 men who are Christians let alone the women and children in that community. And these early days of the church's history were, were bright days. They were happy days, joyful days, days of fellowship, days of teaching sound doctrine. People were getting together to pray and share meals. The world had never seen days quite like these, not since before the fall of Adam, because never before had the Messiah come. This was the new age. This was the age of the Spirit. Forgiveness for sin has been offered. The Spirit's been poured out. These were glorious days. And the heading that I think helps sum up what we're seeing in verse 32 to 37 of chapter 4, if you've got an outline there, there's no headings in there, I've only got two, it's nice and simple this morning. Uh, Here's the first one for you, God's grace created a united fellowship of believers. That's the glorious days of this early church, God's grace created a united fellowship of believers. Have a look at Acts 4 verse 32. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. It's wonderful, isn't it? A beautiful united fellowship. Now, I need to say this is not communism, okay? This is not socialism. Some people take this part of the Bible and go, Oh, Christians should be communists today. Let's, let's go. Let's bring this about. No, no. This is the united fellowship of believers Created by the grace of God. Some of the differences, right? Socialism and communism rely on some form of central leadership, some form of external force that compels the redistribution of wealth. But there's no such compulsion here in Acts. That's very clear when in chapter 5, Peter's going to say to Ananias, Look, you didn't have to sell your property. No one asked you to do that. And even if you did sell your property, you didn't have to bring all the money. There's no external force, no compulsion. The generosity that's coming about here in chapter 4 springs from the internal unity of the believers. It's their love for one another that's passed beyond friendship. This is a group that is of one heart and one mind. It's an internal compulsion, not some external force redistributing wealth. When it describes the people as of one heart and one mind... It reminds us of something in the Old Testament. This is actually part of what God had promised would happen under the new covenant. In Jeremiah 32, God is speaking of this new arrangement that He'll make with sinful people. He says in Jeremiah 32, They will be My people, and I will be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way, so that they will fear Me always. That's what we're seeing played out in Acts chapter 4. God has fulfilled this promise... He's given His Spirit, and now the church is one heart, one mind. And so these Christians live like family. No one's holding on to their things as if they're exclusively theirs. They all understand that everything that they have, well, it's not really theirs, it belongs to the Lord. It's all to be used for His glory. They're just managing God's wealth, not their own money. They're selflessly loving one another with the love that Christ has shown them. This isn't communism, no coercion here. This is grace, God's grace operating in a community, bringing about a unity that nothing else could bring about, bring about a selflessness that nothing else could bring about. Verse 33 shows us what the apostles were doing. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. The apostles are preaching about the resurrection. They're not giving tithing talks, they're not passionately pleading for money, they're just pointing people to the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the same thing they've been preaching from day one, the same message that we've seen in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, the same message they'll keep preaching throughout the rest of Acts. It is this preaching that creates the united fellowship of the church. Sometimes when we think about church unity, everyone loves church unity these days, we want to be united, we want fellowship, we want to feel like we belong. Sometimes we try to bring about unity by talking about unity. We try to create fellowship by talking about fellowship and having activities and events where we just kind of hang out together as if that's going to bring about this sense of fellowship. But you don't get unity, you don't get fellowship by focusing on them, you get unity, you get fellowship by preaching Christ. It's as we preach Christ, as we see and fix our eyes on the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, the, the risen Jesus of the apostles' teaching, as we sit together under God's Word, as we together join in the proclamation of Jesus, then we're running in the same direction. Then we've got the same mission, we've got the same joys and challenges, we share those together, proclaiming Christ in the world. That's fellowship. Not by focusing on fellowship, but by focusing on the mission that we're called to, focus on the apostles' teaching of Jesus. And so that's what's happening here in Acts 4. The apostles teach of Jesus, the early church unites, and God's grace is evident among them. See verse 34? For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Has anyone done that this week? You come to church this morning, you've sold your house, you've sold a piece of land and you've brought the full amount to donate to church. Anyone? This is substantial generosity. This is not what we're used to today. This is a group of people with their eyes fixed on the resurrection. They know Jesus is risen. They know that they will rise too. They know that when that happens, they're not taking any money, any possessions with them. They believe Jesus. And so they're just obeying the command that He gave His disciples in Luke 12. Remember, Luke's written both of these books, as so we look back into Luke 12 and see how Jesus spoke of money and possessions there. He says in Luke 12, Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. That's what we're seeing in Acts 4, this little flock or not so little, you know, perhaps that's up to about 20,000 people by now, this little flock believe Jesus. They're not afraid. Their eyes are fixed on the kingdom to come, and so they're supplying one another's needs. This is the grace of God. So let me ask you, where is your treasure? Do you have possessions that you're very precious about? As you read this description of the early church, where does it encourage and challenge you? Do you have possessions that you see as exclusively your own? So much your own, so much that you're precious about that you wouldn't let anyone else borrow them just in case they do some damage. Acts 4 shows us a community where people aren't saying, hey, that's mine. They're saying, oh, we're in this together. What's mine is yours. There's a selflessness, a generosity that comes about by the grace of God. Now, as I thought about church this week in light of this passage, I... I don't think we have any kinds of needs among us that would require the sale of land or houses. You know, you might consider selling some property to help purchase land or a building for church to meet in. That is something that we're looking at and praying for God to provide. And down through church history, that is how churches have often been built. People have sold land or donated parcels of land that they own. Big acts of generosity have gone into providing church buildings. You might like to do that, it's a worthwhile thing, but that's not Acts 4. That's not what the money's going to here. So I don't want to get us confused by kind of landing there in application. In Acts 4, they're giving to people who are in need. That is, people who are out of work, perhaps. People who have been cut off from family, perhaps lost their jobs for becoming Christian. Remember who this community is in Jerusalem? They've travelled in to celebrate together, to worship at the temple. They've met Jesus, been confronted by the risen Lord Jesus. They've believed in Him. There's lots of people probably sticking around in Jerusalem, not heading back to where they've come from. They've been started to be persecuted. Those who are still Jewish would have probably kicked people out who have become Christian from their jobs. This is a community where there's lots of people, there's going to be lots of need going on, but amongst this community, there's no one destitute. That's the result. There's no one that's in need. So it's not describing everyone kind of has their need for a Ferrari Met. It's not that everyone's got their four-bedroom house on a large section. No, we're talking about need. We're talking about destitution. And within this community, there's still disparity going on, and that's okay. But there are no beggars in the church in Acts 4. Because as soon as someone comes in and is saved, the church is helping them out. Remember the lame beggar that we met back in chapter 3? It strikes me as really interesting that when Peter and John meet him, they say, we don't have any silver and gold, but we do have, we'll give to you, and that's the Lord Jesus. Be healed in His name, meet Jesus. Uh, So they didn't give him silver and gold then, but as that beggar came into this community of Christians, well, he's included in this community here in chapter 4, who has his needs met. He's not begging anymore. There's no one in this community that is in need. Now, I don't know of anyone within church who is in that kind of need. But you might be. And you might just be keeping it hidden. Because it's easy for need of that kind to be hidden, isn't it? We feel shameful about it. There's a sense of shame that comes from needing help. But can I encourage you this morning? We're family. God's grace creates a united fellowship of believers. As Christians, we're family. And if you're in need, if you're working your guts out and still struggling to, Get a roof over your head and food on the table. If you're sleeping in your car at the moment, we don't want that to stay that way. Let someone know. Let your connect group know if you're in a connect group. If you're not in a connect group yet, come up and let me know. We, we don't want it to be the case that we're a church where there are people in need like that. I've been encouraged to see generosity lived out among us. I've seen people come into church who have been sleeping rough. They've come in they visit and they've been loved really well. They've been offered a bed for a couple of nights, they've been given a shower, given hot food, kind of helped on their way to figuring out what's next in life for them. So let's keep that up, yeah? Let's keep being this community that's united together under God's grace. The early church displayed this amazing love, voluntary sacrifice. It was motivated from within, motivated from the new heart that God had given them. They saw need, they made sure it was met. And in verse 36, we meet a character who's going to come up later in Acts, but is introduced as a, a pattern, an illustration of this generosity. His name was Joseph. He was a Levite. So, if you know your Old Testament, this is the same tribe of Israel that Moses and Aaron came from. This was the, the priestly tribe, all the priests who worked in the temple. But something amazing here as a priest has become a Christian, something worth celebrating in that. Uh, he, he's now a believer. The apostles have given him a new nickname. So, he's not Joseph anymore. Now, he knows, he's known as the encourager. It's a pretty good nickname, the encourager. It's better than the nicknames I got at high school, that's for sure. (laughs) Joseph, Barnabas, the encourager. In verse 37, what does he do? He sold a field. He sold a field he owned, he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. That's the pattern that we've seen played out in verse 32 to 35. Joseph, Barnabas, the encourager, he lives it out. And again, we're reminded that this isn't communism. It's not like all Christians instantly sold up everything that they owned and brought it into some common pot that was then distributed evenly amongst everyone that was there. No, no, there's still private ownership. Later in Acts, there are still people who own houses and fields, and that's okay. But in Acts 4, we're seeing a community where there are people like Barnabas, where from time to time, people are coming along, selling their big assets, their appreciable assets, not not just giving of their liquid money, but the things that They can hold on to their concrete capital. They're selling that up and giving to see needs met. And as Acts goes on, we see that Barnabas didn't stay here in Jerusalem. He's going to join Paul in his missionary journeys. He becomes a pastor in the church in Antioch. In many ways, Barnabas is presented to us in Acts as a picture of the model disciple. He has a deep concern for mission, and he also cares about the welfare of the believers. It's not one or the other but both together in the person of Barnabas. Mission and mercy. So Barnabas becomes part of this pattern, God's grace creating a united fellowship of believers. And then we hit chapter 5, and the first word is, but. And that tells us that there's something up here. We're about to see a contrast to Barnabas' good example. And the lesson here in chapter 5 for us, this is the second heading for your outline. God takes His church deadly seriously. God takes His church deadly serious. Have a look at Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Now, that's exactly what Barnabas did. So far, so good. Verse 2. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's wrong here? What has he done wrong? It's not that Ananias wasn't generous. He still sold a piece of property. He still brought a fair amount of money to the church. It's not that he and Sapphira didn't give enough. This is a sizable donation. The issue was that they were pretending to follow this pattern of giving all the proceeds to the community. Have a look at how Peter confronts him in verse 3. Ananias, Peter said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of your land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. Peter says that what Ananias has done is lie. The implication is he was pretending that he was giving the full amount of the land that he sold. He was saying, I sold a piece of land for $2,000 and Peter hears the full $2,000, aren't I generous? Peter calls out Sapphira directly on this in verse 8. When she turns up, Peter says to her, tell me, did you sell the land for this price? She says, yes, for that. She outright lies to Peter's face. That's the issue here. It seems obvious that Ananias and Sapphira have seen other people coming to the temple, which is where the apostles were teaching and gathering these thousands of people. and They're seeing people come to this gathering and lay down their generous gifts, and uh, such people are being rightly honoured and thanked. They're getting a reputation amongst the community. Barnabas even got a new nickname, right? And so Ananias thinks, look, I want a piece of that. I want a new nickname. But when he sells his property, he loves his money too much. He looks at this cash and he thinks about all the great things that he and Sapphira could do with it. They could buy a new donkey, like the best donkey on the market. They could take a trip across the ocean to the Greek Isles. You know, it's not too far away, a pretty beautiful place to go for a holiday. He couldn't bear the thought of giving all the money away. And you need to notice that Peter says it would have been fine for Ananias to keep his land. He was under no constraint to give it, no constraint to sell it, no constraint to give the full sale price. Verse 4, Peter says, the land was yours. When you sold it, the proceeds were yours. It was up to Ananias what to do with the money. He could have come and said to Peter, hey, actually, I sold my land for $2,500. I'm going to keep 500 of it for now, but here's 2,000 of it. Could have given the same amount, just been honest about how much he'd sold it for. Peter and Ananias might still have had a, a chat about generosity at that point, But the issue here is bigger and uglier and more serious in the sight of God. Ananias and Sapphira are hypocrites. That's the right language to describe this. They want the reputation of generosity, so they lie. They love the praise of people. They want to look more generous than they really are. They want to be thought of as great and godly and sacrificial, while not actually being willing to give up everything. They want the appearance without the reality. That's hypocrisy. And God hates hypocrisy. God hates lying and hypocrisy is a lying life. It's it's living the lie. God is true, always and ever speaks the truth. Satan is the one who is the father of lies. Which is why when Ananias turns up, having crafted this scheme of deception with his wife, Peter says to him, verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You want to know about spiritual warfare in the church? This is where spiritual warfare happens. Not in crazy demonic experiences with someone's head whirling around and loud shrieks. No, no. In the temptation to trade truth for the lie. That's where Satan wants to get in and get us to paint spiritual beauty where it doesn't exist, to paint virtue where it doesn't exist. When you do that, when you engage in hypocrisy, you're following the devil, not the spirit. Hypocrisy in church is not just lying to people, it's lying to God, it's lying to the Holy Spirit. God takes His church seriously. He dwells in His church by His Spirit. This morning as we gather, God is here. The holy, holy, holy God is here by His Spirit. It's not a social club that we come together and just have some tea and bickies. We're gathered around the throne of God. We're purified by His presence. And so as I read this story in Acts 5, I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira realized that. Maybe they didn't believe that the Spirit was really present in the church. Maybe they were just operating on a human level, seeing a gathering of people that were coming together, sharing some stuff in common. They never even thought about the real presence of the Spirit of the living God, that God was there. Maybe they believed that He was there. They believed in His presence in some theoretical way, but they just didn't think that He knew the thoughts of their mind. Maybe they knew the Spirit was there, but they thought they could get away with this deception. If they kept their stories straight, they could lie really well, No one would know. Or perhaps they thought that the Holy Spirit was real and was there, but just that He would never punish them for their deception. Perhaps they had a view of grace that said, no matter how devious and hypocritical you are, God's just going to tolerate it. It'll be okay. I don't know what it was for them that made them come and think they could lie to the Holy Spirit and discredit the Holy Spirit. But don't we try to do that in all those same ways in the church today? Some people come to worship on a Sunday and operate totally on the human level, never even considering the real living presence of God in this place. Some come and give kind of a theoretical assent to His presence. Yeah, God's here. But we don't really come to terms with the awesome fact that it's God who is here. He's hearing every thought. He's seeing everything that comes into our imagination. He's seeing our hearts others of us come and we convince ourselves that the thoughts of the heart they're not serious enough to kind of put off in our lives cuz well grace always means tolerance right whatever i do god's just going to tolerate it it'll be okay hey whatever in each of those cases if you're thinking that the spirit is discredited and demeaned god is here he takes his church seriously he dwells in his church What lies are you making to God this morning? Oh, that's a probing question, isn't it? What reputation do you want within church, even though it doesn't match the reality of your heart? Do you want to be known as the knowledgeable Christian? The wise Christian? The generous giver? The patient parent? The humble husband? The celibate single? A fervent servant what reputation do you want within church i need to watch my heart in this I, this pride is a huge one of those root sins for me it's the one that keeps coming up and showing its ugly head uh, in my heart i notice the desire to be to have the reputation of being well read and well connected and so often i'm tempted to lie and or to exaggerate and pretend that i know someone well who Maybe I met them once at a conference. Uh, to pretend or exaggerate that I've read a book that perhaps I heard someone talk about that they'd read and I fill in the gaps. Is it, I want to be known as that well-read, well-connected Christian. Oh, why? Why do I care so much about my reputation? What is it for you? What do you want to be known for? There are so many ways that we can pretend, exaggerating stories to build up a reputation, to preserve a reputation, that is of Satan, that is not of God. And Sadly, the church in our day and age has become known for hypocrisy. Child sex abuse scandals, embezzlement of church funds by ministers, gossip and slander, adultery, all of those things happening while on the surface everything looks like happy families. A veneer of holiness gets painted over sin. There's always been hypocrisy in the church. It's recorded here in Acts as the first sin in the life of the church. But it's recorded here so that we would know God's attitude toward hypocrisy. That's why this story is here. Yes, there's hypocrisy in the church. Yes, there's hypocrisy in this church. We're all subject to putting on a mask of spirituality that's not legitimate. But sinning saints who feign holiness... Who fake virtue, who pretend at godliness, that is very dishonoring to God. The church is full of hypocrites, absolutely. None of us truthfully, none of us lives lives the way that we ought to live. None of us lives perfectly, none of us lives the Christ like life. So we should never pretend that we do. We shouldn't act as if the realities of our sin don't even exist. We gather together as a community of sinners, pleading the mercy of God, clinging to the righteousness of Christ, never comfortable with sin, but inviting God's inspection, that He might search our hearts, that He might show us our sin and refine us and purify us. In Acts 5, hypocrisy is exposed, and God shows how seriously He takes it. He strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. God is not playing at this thing called church. He is dead serious about His church. Hypocrisy acts like a cancer within a community. It spreads, it sets a culture of pretending that means sin is never actually dealt with. That's the danger. If we keep covering it over and pretending like things are going okay, we never deal with the sin that God wants to deal with. And so when God sees hypocrisy here in the early life of the church, He cuts it out swiftly. And the result is that people fear God. See verse 5, Acts chapter 5, verse 5. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. Fear. It's repeated again in verse 10 to make sure we get the point. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. So the reason Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead is not because this happens to all hypocrites. When we get to chapter 8, we meet Simon the magician. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't drop dead instantly. Uh, God hasn't struck me dead yet, and I've been a hypocrite within church. So it's not that this is the common pattern for hypocrites within church. But the reason Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead is to give a stunning warning to the whole church. In these early days of their life together, God means for His people to fear Him. God means for His people to fear hypocrisy. He means for us to be afraid of treating the Holy Spirit with contempt. Yes, fear is the right response to this passage. As we keep going in the book of Acts, chapter 9 verse 31 gives us a great summary of the life of the early church. In Acts 9 verse 31 we hear that the church spread throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Did you see what characterized this early church? It was the fear of the Lord that same fear that gripped them the day that Ananias and Sapphira died was still with them months later as they gathered in Acts 9. So if you hear this story this morning and you're afraid, that's right. Fear God. Put sin to death in your life. Did you come to a social club this morning? Did you come to share tea and Bicky's catch up with some friends? Or did you come to the church of the living God to the united fellowship that God's grace has created? Did you come with a mask on, with a facade of spiritual purity? Or did you come to pursue purity, to confront your sin, knowing that you're not there yet, knowing that none of us is there yet, knowing that the Spirit already knows all of our sin? Did you come prepared to be honest with one another so that we would pursue purity together? God's grace created a united fellowship of believers and God takes his church dead serious. Let's treat the church the way God treats it. And so let me pray that we would be all that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, it's a sobering passage. It's been a sobering morning. We come face to face with the fact that even the best of churches, even in our beloved church, there's the reality of sin. We can't overcome it in this life. And so we wait with longing for the redemption of our bodies. We long for that day when Jesus will return. We know that he's sitting at your right hand now, risen and ascended. We long for him to come, that we would be glorified, that we would be free from sin. And Lord, this morning there's one sin that you have elevated and brought to our attention in bold relief it seems to be above the rest that this would be the first sin you'd pick up on in the early church and that is hypocrisy lord don't let us think that we can lie to each other about who we are don't let us think that we can lie to you you hate a lying tongue you hate a lying heart father give us spiritual integrity help us to be real believers not perfect but genuine honest seekers of truth pursuers of holiness strip away any spiritual deception any fraud any hypocrisy in our hearts deal with that in our church wherever it exists lord expose it amongst us expose the hypocrisy as you did in that first church may we be a church that is pure and true purify your church make us real true lovers of christ true lovers of one another So the testimony about Jesus may shine forth clearly. What a privilege it is to be those messengers of Christ. Give us the joy that comes out of being genuine with one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.